if you just wear a clean shirt, shave, comb your hair, then people are much nicer, much more respectful. You're going to have much less trouble. Hi, I'm Alan Hill, the nostalgic vagabond. I lived out of a backpack for many years during my 20s and some 30s. I'm less of a nomad these days. In this podcast series, I'm catching up with old friends, wonderful people I've met in the traveller's trek. And what better time is there to catch up, reminisce, and see how everyone is getting on in 2020? I hope you enjoy hearing about our journeys as much as we've enjoyed sharing. Road trips. Some of the best independent adventures can be found by jumping into a car and cruising out onto the open road, sometimes with a clear destination in mind, sometimes not. I've been on road trips with my brothers, old friends, new friends, randoms from Craigslist, sort of hitchhiking, but it's not really, more organised. I've also done it solo. America, Australia, Canada, Ireland and the UK. Been on some epic ones, but I don't think my endeavours come close to match those of my guest on this episode. Martin Goffriller, Professor of Archaeology at the Charlie University of Mining and Technology. Martin and I met through couchsurfing here in Liverpool while he was working at the University of. During lockdown, Martin was forced to retreat and ride out the first wave of the pandemic on an island in the Med. There are worse things, I suppose. I was curious to zoom in and talk with Martin about what was going on with him and to finally hear about his odyssey driving his 4x4 across Eurasia. Martin. Where are you zooming in from today, mate? I'm zooming in from Mallorca in Spain, where I've been stuck for the last half year, more or less, since, yeah, since mid-January, corona reasons. Yeah? Yeah. And uh, you were working out there, I gather? No, I'm not. I'm actually living in China at the moment. So I've been um, living in China for about two and a half years now, teaching at a university out there. But I came home, I came back to Spain for the um, uh, Spring Festival holidays. And I got stuck out here because obviously I couldn't travel back into China after, uh, after some time. And uh, I'm still biding my time, waiting to hear something from either my university or the Chinese authorities about when I might be able to return. So who knows when that will be. There's still no clear word on the future. Absolutely none. There's surprising little, little communication on the part of the Chinese. Um, I think they're keeping their options open. And as things are not necessarily getting better in most places, I think they are sort of uh, trying to reevaluate their, uh, their options at the moment. So we'll see how it goes. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast. And uh, the reason why I decided to start this was nobody can really travel right now. So why not talk about it? Exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> You and I met in Liverpool while you were working at the university there, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. We met, when was that? Was that 2016? I think it would have probably been early 2016 when we first met at uh, Ucrack, um on a, on a couch surfing night, getting, as we probably did, quite plastered. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the local couch surfing booze up. <laughs> that's right yeah I, i'm curious about how often uh, you might have used the platform for couch surfing were you uh, an avid user of couch surfing or uh, sort of from time to time or just a completely spontaneous user or have you utilized it on your traveling experiences many times so i actually got into couch surfing when i first moved to liverpool really just to sort of hang out and meet new people i just arrived in the city didn't know anybody there somebody and i can't quite remember who told me about couch surfing and so i thought i'd you know sign up and see whether this thing is actually even worth anything and what kind of people hang out there i have to say in liverpool we were lucky enough that we had this guy kev who was really good at organizing meetings and getting people sort of you know together to do stuff and hang out and meet new people so the the crowd in liverpool i thought was really good and that kind of motivated me to sort of spend a bit more time with it and uh, actually get a bit more involved as well. So initially, it was just to hang out and, you know, just have a good time. And after that, I actually started hosting people at my place um, in, my, in my own home. And that was actually a really good experience. I, I sort of, I'm, I'm still in touch with some of those people. I made some pretty good friends through it. And I thought it was a really good way to travel you know, to sort of uh, not just travel to a city or to a place, but to actually hang out with people who know the place and do so economically. And uh, it's sort of a kind of a, this concept of reciprocity as well, which I, which really appealed to me. 
And on my travels, I use it a little bit, but not quite so much because I travel with my car, which is a camper. So I don't really need it so much. Yeah, this is the, uh, the infamous 4x4, four four, right? Mm, the infamous Momo, that is his nickname. Yeah. <laughs> Momo. <laughs> yeah. I'm very curious about this because it was a couple of years ago now you were telling of your plan of doing this massive pan-Eurasian odyssey in Momo. Can you elaborate a bit more on what your start point was, what your finish point was, and how you went about that adventure? I have to admit, it was a sort of a bit of a slow burn at the beginning. Like the idea of traveling across the Silk Road, I have to admit, was always there. I, since I'm a little kid, that has really appealed to me. It had some sort of a, I had a, a sort of a romantic notion of, you know, quite Orientalist, I guess, in some ways of caravans under a star-spangled sky or something like that. And I never thought I'd really be able to do something like that. But in, I think it was in 2016, when the idea really started sort of fermenting in the back of my head, I was a bit fed up with my work. Um, I was fed up with living in the UK after nearly 17 years there. I felt it was time for a change of some kind. And then Brexit happened, and that was sort of the last nail in the coffin. <laughs> and I thought, you know, this is as good a time as any. I'm single, I don't have any major commitments. I'm financially more or less independent. And so I decided to actually go ahead and do this thing. Another thing that really influenced me was actually a book by a guy called Rory Stewart, uh, in which he talks about his trip across Afghanistan in 2001, right after the invasion of the coalition. Um, he walks on foot straight through Afghanistan, and the book is called The Places in Between. And I figured, man, if that guy can do that and survive it and even write a book about it, then surely just driving around with a car like a bloody tourist is going to be fine, you know? And that sort of allayed many of my worries, and I sort of thought, yeah, this is actually perfectly doable. And so I started looking into it a little bit more deeply into things like visas, a potential route, what kind of places do I actually want to visit. I gave myself half a year to really think about it. I thought if I'm half a year, if in six months I still want to do this, I'll start telling people about it. If in six months this idea does not seem like completely idiotic or crazy or nothing better comes along, I'll start talking to my boss, my parents, I'll start making plans more earnestly. And that's more or less what I did. Yeah, that's how it, that's, that's when you guys found out. Because, <laughs> yeah, I remember you telling us about it one of, during one of the meetings. I think everybody was really excited for you. And actually a little bit sad as well to know that you'd be leaving. Mm. At the same time, really happy that you were embarking on a crazy adventure and perhaps even a little bit jealous. Where exactly did you start the journey? Was it here in the UK or on the continent? Well, I mean, that's obviously a kind of, yeah, that's one of those questions. I suppose the question that the, the journey started in my mind a long time ago. <laughs> but physically speaking, I bought the car in Spain. I spent some months just uh, looking online all over Europe where I could find a car that would more or less fit my purposes. I ended up relatively lucky, really, finding a really cheap old uh, Toyota 4Runner, which was fully camperized by um, a fairly really good outfit, like a really professional company that do these things very well. And it was, it was their prototype car. It was the car that they would, when they started the company, it was the first car they built. And it was the car they would take to fairs to show their tech and their equipment and so on. And that is the car that I ended up buying. And I got it in Spain, in Seville. The company is called Uro Camper and uh, very, very much recommended just to plug that here a little bit. <laughs> yeah, so I flew out to Seville, had a look at the car, was very happy with it and uh, bought it right there and then and drove up to Liverpool with it, where I then had it for a few months just in the process of getting ready for the final, for the final departure. Now, you were discussing earlier that you considered quite a lot the type of journey you would take and which places you might visit on the way. Uh, were there any particular destinations or cities that were right at the top of your list that you said to yourself, I must go to these places on the way to China? Yeah, there were. <clears throat> I think my first sort of absolute destination that I needed to hit was going to be Istanbul. Um, I really wanted to, to go through Istanbul. Another place was in eastern Turkey, a city uh, sort of most people have never heard of this place, but it's a, a small town on a lake called Van, like Van, like the car. And um, yeah, it was sort of um, 
the ancient capital of the Urartian kingdom and for an archaeologist that has a pretty sexy appeal to it. And then um, there's also a bunch of other really interesting places sort of between the Turkish Armenian border, which I was interested in. Then in Iran, I was very keen on going to Isfahan. Isfahan in Iran was a fantastic place. I have to admit that was really, really interesting. And then beyond that, it wasn't so much cities that I was interested in, but just sort of places of historical interest. They could be monuments, they could be landscapes, they could just be locations that to me had some kind of historical appeal that I, you know, then, that I knew from the literature maybe, and that I felt I just wanted to experience that place. Yeah, but not so many cities really, not as many as, I, as you might think perhaps, yeah. When you were planning this trip as well, had you foreseen any specific challenges that you'd prepared for? And then when you were actually on the road, had you come across any unforeseen challenges that really put a spanner in the works? Yeah, I mean, I, I had done quite a lot of reading and um, sort of also been on forums on, on, you know, sort of like things on Facebook and like trying to read up what other people had done, what their experiences had been. And I think you often fixate on the wrong kind of thing. I was much more worried about things like my car breaking down or, you know, facing inclement conditions, bad weather and my personal health, you know, um, making sure I was carrying a completely oversized med kit and way too many tools and spare parts and stuff like that. Ultimately, I found that all those things had much easier solutions than I had initially anticipated. For the most part, people, I mean, almost always, everywhere um, I came across people, they were helpful. They were curious. They were interested, incredibly generous. Everybody wanted to help. And if they couldn't help themselves, they'd usually make sure they found someone who could. Even across language barriers, I had absolutely no issues in that regard. One thing I did underestimate is the absolute pain in the ass that it is crossing borders, getting visas, and dealing with the police. That's something that you may register on an intellectual level, because everybody knows that crossing borders is, is a pain. But the extent to which it can be a pain when you're sitting for eight, nine hours at a border crossing, 38 degrees uh, in the middle of summer with no water, no toilet, and then are told to turn around because the border is now closed, that's the sort of thing that makes you want to shoot someone. You know, that's, <laughs> that's where you start becoming aggressive and, um, you know, you start developing certain, uh, uh, you know, sort of hatred, <laughs> just irrational hatred. Um, I imagine the fatigue uh, and the boredom doesn't help in, in spiking up those emotions of, of rage. Yeah. And it also seems so arbitrary, especially when you're dealing with the police. Sometimes I feel they're usually polite. There's definitely that. Certainly in Central Asia, my experience is that the police are polite, but they're corrupt and they will try and, you know, make a buck. So, yeah, it, it happens almost on a daily basis. Even now, when I go out there, they will stop me for absolutely no reason. And uh, now I know how to handle it. But at the beginning, I thought I was in trouble. You know, I always assumed I'd done something wrong. Um, these guys, they've, they've, they've got me, you know, they can make my day horrible. Now I realize they're just bored too. And, uh, you know, uh, they've got nothing better to do than to stop a guy with a foreign number plate and see if they can get some money out of them. So I just waste. <laughs> and now what I do is I waste their time to the point where they're like, ah, oh, just get the hell out of here. <laughs> I show them pictures on my phone. I tell them stories. And after a while, they get bored and let me go. You've turned it into a bit of a game. That's right. I guess that becomes part of the adventure. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So Martin, uh, you mentioned that one of the, contributing factors to getting on this journey and, and moving your, your life eastward was because of Brexit. <laughs> um, I'm also curious in relation to the journey specifically, you said that it's something you always wanted to do since you were a child. Were there any personal or spiritual or career reasons for doing this particular journey? Do you think it, it might have helped you uh, with personal development or perhaps discover archaeological things or, or cultural things that you might be able to use in your work later in life? Um, it was not initially my intention to regard this as a kind of professional development. Uh, I didn't regard this as a career move, not in any way. But it, eventually it kind of turned out that way. 
at the beginning, it was really just a kind of a, I don't know, a sort of a weird pilgrimage, I guess you can call it. I had previously, um, when, I was, when I was younger, I'd done the Walk of St. James in Spain. I don't know if you're familiar with that thing. It's a kind of a, it's a hike across the north of Spain for, from basically from the French border all the way to the northwestern coast of Spain to a place called Santiago, Santiago de Compostela. And that is an ancient pilgrimage route that Christians have been doing for the best part of, you know, 1300 years. Now, I'm not a Christian or I don't consider myself a, you know, a religious person in any way. But the process of traveling on foot over the course of a month with very clear set goals and destinations is actually an incredibly cathartic process. It's, it is a form of meditation walking. And I'd done that for the first time, just for the hike, when I was like 18 or 19 years old. And I felt it had a really um, positive effect on me. It, it gave me a certain, I don't know, um, sounds cheesy or cliche, but yeah, it gives you a degree of inner peace and sort of allows you to sort of refocus on the things that matter. And then I did it again a few years later in 2004 and still felt very good about it. And I thought maybe this is something that I need to do every few years, every sort of, you know, every five years or so, find a destination that you can just sort of point your nose towards and just head in that direction. So the trip kind of started off with that idea in mind. And partially, of course, also just the, the intellectual interest of just visiting all these places that I had been fascinated by since I was a little kid. And then in the course of the trip, it did gradually turn to something a little bit more focused on perhaps looking or thinking about what would I do afterwards. So what do I do once this trip is done, you know, when I arrive? And I didn't even know where I was going to arrive. I didn't have that clearer destination in mind. Initially, I set myself Shanghai as my, as my final place to go to, but I couldn't drive into China. So that then changed. So, yeah. But your ambition was to actually drive into China. You were unable mm. to in the end. That's right. So I couldn't drive into China because the Chinese are very, very restrictive about allowing foreigners um, to drive in China. Certainly not with a foreign driver's license or indeed an international license. You cannot drive in China. They're not accepted. Unless you go through a guide and they cost like a fortune that you have to pay for them every day. And you're not even allowed to drive the car yourself in many cases. So that wasn't really the kind of trip I wanted to do. And therefore, I decided to kind of spend more time in Central Asia and drive around much spent like the, 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 this extra two months that, that I would have had to spend driving through China. I spent them driving around Central Asia and uh, just exploring that region more. So where did you end up in the end? Which destination? I end up, ended up leaving the car in Bishkek, uh, the capital of Kyrgyzstan. But I'd been through there a couple of times before already. I already knew the city. I'd like, I've, I've done Central Asia now, uh, all the different stands, with the exception of Afghanistan, numerous times back and forth. Yeah. And the car is still there. The car is hopefully still there. Yeah. <laughs> it's supposed to be. There. Is there a caretaker? <laughs> yeah, there is. Well, actually, so this is, this is on a bit of a downer right now. Just earlier this morning, I was talking to some of my friends in, out in, in Kyrgyzstan because I need to get the car out of the country because there are certain import restrictions as to how long the car can remain there. And the car has been staying with a, with a guy that I know who's got a garage. And so I've been paying him some money and he takes care of the car. The problem is I found out this morning that he is critically ill with Corona <gasps> and on a ventilator and he's, it's not looking not looking good now obviously i hope that he survives and that he makes a full recovery jesus but it's a very bad situation out there at the moment so i had actually planned of flying out there this summer and uh, doing some more work but there's no way i can do that it's very dangerous yeah speaking of future plans is there anything in the pipeline for you right now trips booked or trips in your thoughts mm. that you can't maybe even reveal right now or are you just living in a state of you know ambient flux just waiting out and seeing what happens well, at the moment, there's not much more I can do than waiting out and see what happens. But yeah, I did have a few trips planned. I wanted to go to Japan, actually, in May. Um, had that trip more or less set up. And uh, obviously, that didn't happen. And um, But that would have been a, a fairly short, like sort of 10-day kind of, uh, you know, just just because I've never been to Japan before. I would love to see Tokyo and Kyoto and a few other places that, you know, I just, I'd like to, I'd like to see. And because of the the proximity of where I live in China, normally in Shuzhou, there are direct flights to Osaka. It would have been easy to do that 
had it not been for the current situation. So that's not going to happen for the time being. And big trip. Yeah, I do have one in mind, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to reveal that one. Right. Secret. It's a bit of a secret at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I look forward to uh, when you can reveal that in a, a pub somewhere in the future. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. I'll let you guys know. In a sense, Martin, I kind of, I like how uh, you think and, and digest an idea and then you reveal it to people because in a sense, it kind of makes you accountable to see it through. Yes. Especially if it's a crazy, crazy ambitious journey like the one you did with the 4 by 4 Yeah. You could say something and just end up never doing it. And what's the fun in that? Yeah, I don't think there's any point in, in sharing a dream unless you can sort of make it come true at some point. And it's also, as you say, there's a degree of accountability, not only to other people, but more than anything to myself. I don't want to jinx it in a way, you know? I don't want to be um, sort of announcing something that I haven't really got ready in any sense, like, you know, mentally or, you know, uh, infrastructurally, logistically, these things do take quite a lot of preparation. And um, it's very easy to sort of come up with a harebrained idea and then very quickly realize, you know, what this is never going to happen. So I, I prefer not to share it if I, if I don't know I can actually do it. Fair enough. Appreciate that. You've been stuck on an island yeah. since the start of the year. Have you managed to at least explore some of that during the lockdown and the, the preceding months and the, the months after? I have. Um, I mean, during the lockdown, of course, no. The lockdown here in Spain was, was very strict and there was police everywhere. You couldn't leave the house. It was uh, even where I live. I live in the countryside, sort of up a hill. And even the place where I usually go running, um, in the evenings, uh, the police were up there. There's helicopters flying. They would send you home. It was pretty intense. There's no road, no cars on the road anywhere. So yeah, it was a little bit like the uh, the opening scenes of 28 Days Later. I don't know if you've seen that movie, but it's uh, it was a pretty poignant experience. But now we're all open again. Everything is, um, all the shops and businesses are open, the bars and restaurants. Tourists are very gradually tricking, trickling back into the island. And I'm hoping for my friends out here for their sake that, they actually managed to make some money this summer because otherwise it's a wasted season and uh, everybody's struggling financially. It's a hard time for a lot of people. How are you surviving not being able to freely travel and, and do what you need to do? Are you, are you compensating with, with other things or learning new hobbies or, or thinking in a different way, meditating? I'm, I'm, well, I mean, I'm obviously still on a payroll. I'm still working and um, I'm, you know, um, I'm still teaching. My classes are just online. Um, I've still got my research that I'm, that I'm uh, pushing forward with and uh, I'm still writing papers and so on. So that's ongoing. Now, the tricky thing is obviously funding for further research. Everything's on ice at the moment. Nobody's going to fund any major research projects right now. So I'm, you know, just I keep doing my thing. Honestly, I have to admit, I am really ready to get back to work now. I'm ready to go back to China. I'm ready to go back to my office. I'm ready to sort of, you know, have a much more structured day than I'm currently having. I feel like I'm on holiday, which is not a very productive mindset. Have you managed to set up a, a decent workspace there in, in the house? <laughs> Ish. Uh, <laughs> it's, <laughs> I mean, I got myself a second computer screen for my laptop. And uh, yeah, I'm more or less, I'm, I'm keeping abreast of things. It's not the same. You see, I, everybody's different. For me, I work best in a kind of an office environment surrounded by other people who are also working and who you can talk to about work and where there is a bit of a, a discourse, an exchange. I do need that. I'm not a very good home worker. I suck at that. I need to, I'm motivated by a crowd rather than just by myself. Yeah, I can relate to that. I often mm. do my writing outside of the home, mm. whether it's in a cafe or in the library reading rooms yeah. or uh, in some kind of communal workspace because everybody else is doing the same thing and there's no excuses. Yeah. You know, you can't duck down to the kitchen for another cup of tea or mooch around and, and watch a YouTube video because when you're in a, a space, you kind of feel obligated to work because everybody else is mm. and that pushes you to be productive. Yeah, absolutely. It? That's absolutely right. And it's also the um, one thing that I miss is particularly in an academic environment, being surrounded by other people that are also working on a paper or a thesis or doing some research and like bouncing ideas off people and getting feedback, immediate feedback. 
that is something that I miss. Or just going for a pint with colleagues and sort of, you know, talking about the kind of stuff that you might not necessarily address in the office, but once you've had a few pints, you know, you sort of become a little bit more vocal about. Um, those are the things that I miss. And, and yeah. yeah, this is also one of those things where, I mean, a lot of people are talking about how the home office is going to be the future of work, um, at least in the service sector, perhaps, and in academia too. And while I understand why people say that, and I also understand how that might be to some extent incentivized by companies because they can save on a huge amount of uh, office space, I'm not sure it's necessarily that much more productive, at least from my experience. Maybe other people feel differently about that. People like you and me could go and work in the office and other people who maybe prefer to be at home can have more flexibility to work from home. But that would be a rejigging of the whole workforce structure, wouldn't it? The way it's set up from the way it is at the moment. I think there's going to be some substantial changes coming out of this whole corona experience. And the way we work and the way we sort of interact socially as well. Um, I notice that here in Spain, normally the way people greet each other is with, you know, two kisses on the cheek, especially you know, women with women and men with women. That's more or less how we, how we do it. And now obviously nobody does that anymore. And everybody's like, you know, fist bumping or like whacking their elbows or like, I don't know, like all sorts of odd new rituals are appearing. And I'm wondering how long does it take for these things to, to then stick around? If, if this is only for a month or two, then of course people revert back to old habits. But if you have to end up doing this for a year or two, does it end up becoming the norm? And are we then, do we then start feeling weird about sort of like giving each other two kisses on the cheek again? Does that suddenly become an invasion of privacy at some point? I don't know. This is definitely going to have some, some effects. And I'm wondering if there's space for some weird anthropological studies in that. Very interesting. A very positive way of looking at the situation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe a little bit, maybe a little bit blue skies research, but I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of technology, we, we were saying that uh, it's been something we've had to utilize with work in the modern time mm. and get used to. I was curious if there was any specific pieces of technology that you like to use for traveling purposes. Um, <laughs> yeah. One thing I noticed is that, for example, Google Earth can be, in, uh, Google Maps, sorry, Google Earth as well, can be incredibly useful. And I did most of my trip just using that as my GPS unit. Navigating foreign cities where you can't even read the road signs, like in Iran, for example, is, is tricky at the best of times. Doing so at rush hour traffic with, with a three-ton car it, it is, is difficult. And, you know, you're stressed out. You're the only person in the car. Nobody else can read a map for you. And I don't know how in God's name I would have done that if it wasn't, you know, with the use of a, of a modern GPS unit or indeed in my case, just an iPhone, a mobile phone app. Even just having done the same trip maybe, say, 10 or 15 years ago would have been way more hassle than it is today just the use of just a, a, a just a map a gps thing works enormously well you and i are probably old enough to remember what it was like before google maps yeah. and these gps things mm -hmm. but do you appreciate having it or do you think it's taken away a bit from the the complexities and the the adventure of of that particular road journey yes and no it has definitely taken away a layer of there's sort of a the phenomenology of being lost of actively being lost, not even intentionally, but by accident, is in itself actually, it is, it is an experience, a layer of experience um, that is now not really that common anymore. It doesn't happen so much anymore. And I've been lost many, many times on road trips and, and also on treks and on foot. It's always hassle in the moment, but you look back on it afterwards at the end of the experience and uh, perhaps even fondly because obviously you know it's part of the story and the, st the things that happen to you when you're lost are part of the journey right so yeah you're right there's definitely an element of experience that has been kind of receding because it still happens you know your gps breaks down your phone has no battery stuff like that can still happen and it happens all the time but it happens much more rarely oddly enough when it happens now with all this technology at our disposal, I feel it makes me much more um, stressed and much more angry than it would have done when I didn't have the technology. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so before the technology, you more embraced the idea of being lost as part of 
what you had to go through as part of being outside your comfort zone right. and you accepted it. You accounted for it. True. You know, you accounted for the fact that getting lost was a possibility, which now you don't really do anymore because you lie on it so much um, that when it does happen, you're like, yeah, oh, I'm up shit creek without a paddle now, you know, and uh, it's not necessarily like that. You just have to sort of take a step back and say, well, shit, for the last 15,000 years, people have been traveling without this kind of aid. They made it to their destination somehow. So, you know, you can too just, you know, focus on, on the world around you and not on the little screen. But it does, it does make life a lot easier, of course, yeah. Especially when it comes to, to traveling in foreign cities. Yeah, you can embrace the technology, but not necessarily rely on it. That's probably the best way of looking at it. Another thing that, um, that I use now, which I didn't initially for the trip, but I use it now for my research in Kazakhstan, where I work in very remote areas, like hundreds and hundreds of kilometers from civilization sometimes. And I'm by myself out there. So I've started using a satellite phone not that I actually, I've never needed it, but it's good to know you have it. It makes, a, it makes you that much more willing to take certain risks that I would have otherwise never taken. If, I, if I'm heading out into the middle of nowhere, now I know that somebody, if shit hits the fan, I know I can get in touch. I know there's relief. Otherwise, and you know, in, in my previous sort of uh, fieldwork seasons out there, there were certain places where I just didn't, I just didn't go that far. You know, if I have to go four, five hundred K out in the desert, I'm not going to do it. Not by myself. And now I do. Now I, I'm less, less worried about it. So in that respect, yes, it has also amplified my, my horizons in some respects. And yet you can argue it's a question of courage, but it's also to some extent a question of just, you know, of common sense. <laughs> yeah. With all these different experiences from your work or from your pleasure in terms of travel, have you learned a specific piece of advice or do you want to tell to people perhaps who haven't done as many interesting things or are younger and are thinking about going on crazy trips? What would you be able to share with them? So two things that I think are valuable advice for anybody doing this kind of a trip beyond being prepared and, you know, make sure your papers are in order and the usual crap. I think two things that people don't necessarily always think of, but which are incredibly helpful and useful are, first of all, be polite. When you, when you drive or ride through a town or a village in the middle of nowhere and people stare at you as if you come from another planet because they don't know what you're all about, smile and wave. Always smile and wave. Always acknowledge people's presence. Show that you're no threat. Show that you're not um, there for any kind of nefarious reason. Show that you're someone that they might want to talk to, that you're open to be talked to because you never know when you're going to see them next. It's possible that two kilometers out of the village, you break down, you have a flat tire, whatever, and you're going to have to double back and you're going to see those people again and you're going to have to ask them for help. So always, always, always smile and wave. So that's, that's one thing. And it doesn't even matter how shitty the day is that you're having or you know, uh, that you may have a moment of road rage in town and you just want to honk everyone out the way. Don't do it. You know, just sort of try and keep your cool and be, be polite because these people can come in incredibly handy 20 minutes later. And the other thing I noticed makes a huge difference is when you cross a border, put on a clean shirt, look tidy, because nobody wants to have some filthy scrag coming into their country, you know? So I, this is something I noticed, uh, especially traveling uh, sort of in Central Asia and sort of places like Iran and so on where there's the Mongol rally. I don't know if you've heard of the Mongol rally. Many of the kids doing the Mongol rally, you know, of course they're, you know, they're out there to have a good time and uh, they just, they're out there for the adventure and the experience and the story and whatnot. And these guys, they often exaggerate the extent to which this is a hard trip and they turn up looking all, you know, scruffy with like, uh, you know, unwashed and whatnot. And nobody really wants to have a person like that in their country, you know? So if you're a border guard, you're going to make that guy's life a little bit harder than it needs to be. And I noticed that pretty early on. If you just wear a clean shirt, shave, comb your hair, then people are much nicer, much more respectful. You're going to have much less trouble. Yeah, so I think those are my two main, main bits of advice. Be polite. And uh, when you cross a border, look halfway tidy. So you're basically saying don't give anybody a reason to not like you. Exactly. 
<laughs> that can go for it, even everything in life. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually have a funny story, Martin, that in terms of border crossings that I learned way back in, I think it was 2010, I was crossing a, a very, very rural border between uh, Saskatchewan and okay. North Dakota. So bumfuck nowhere, essentially. <laughs> right. It was... 1am and I was in a car with a, a, a rideshare driver that I found on the internet. It's pretty bamboozling to more conservative people who haven't you know, thought about crazy traveling and, and these types of people. But I was coming in from Canada to the States. I was being smart with the border guards, which is not a good piece of advice. No. Don't do that. <laughs> do what Martin says. Be polite. Don't give them an excuse to do something to you. So mm -hmm. I have two passports which is quite common for Australian people, but it's not so common for Americans. I entered with a British passport mm -hmm. into the States because I had a work permit in that particular passport. And then they said, what's your accent? Mm -hmm. While I was talking with them. And I said, oh, I come from Australia. Mm -hmm. And then they said, so why do you have a British passport? I was being smart. And I said, I'm just lucky, aren't I? <laughs> Twat. <laughs> <laughs> and then obviously they requested to see my second passport, mm. which I then gave them. And that had a visa for Pakistan oh. inside. And then trouble began. <laughs> I was placed in a room for about one and a half hours mm. and only spoken to for about 15 minutes, but I had to sit out on my own yeah. and feel like an absolute douchebag because my rideshare had done nothing wrong and I was making her wait as well. Oh, of course. And then they assumed we were a couple and then they couldn't believe that we just met the day before and were driving from Calgary yeah. to Toronto across three days yeah. and sleeping in different places. And they wondered if we had weed and it was just, yeah. it went on and on and on. Yeah. And I felt like such a knob. So yeah, don't ever be smart. No. With anybody, really. No, no, but especially on the border. I mean, that, that's, this is it. Like, border guards and policemen can make your, they can make your life hell. And sometimes they just feel like it. Sometimes they're having a rough day. And if you're, if you're being, being a bit of a dick with them, they can, really, they can really, yeah, they can be really hard to deal with. I had a similar experience on crossing the border between Georgia and Azerbaijan. So I'd been, I'd been down to Iran. And when I drove to Iran, I drove through Armenia. So I went to Armenia, then into Iran. And then my initial plan had been to exit Iran through Turkmenistan. But Turkmenistan is an incredibly weird little country and they don't let anybody through. Apparently I was denied a transit visa because my car wasn't white. <laughs> um, they only allow white cars. I mean, it's, it's stupid anyway. So then I was stuck in Iran with nowhere to go because my, my transit papers for Iran specify very, uh, very specifically state that I have to enter through Armenia and I will exit through Turkmenistan, which was now no longer possible. So I had to have all my papers changed. It was a massive pain in the ass. So I had to then double back, drive back through Armenia into Georgia, from Georgia into um, Azerbaijan, and from there catch a ferry across the Caspian Sea into Kazakhstan. I now had two uh, transit uh, stamps in my passport for, from Armenia. Armenia is in a state of war with Azerbaijan. So there's no direct border between the two countries. That's why I had to go up into, uh, into Georgia and then from Georgia into Azerbaijan. The Georgians see the, the, the transit stamps from Armenia in a relatively short period, in like three weeks, I'd been to Armenia twice. And they were like, hmm, this is weird. What is this guy all about? You know, what was he doing in Armenia? So they pull me aside, stick me, as you say, same story. They stick me in a little room. It was like in the movies, you know, uh, windowless room, uh, table, chair, lamp in the face, uh, really odd, sitting there for ages. And then some guy walks in and in very good English, he's holding my papers, my passport, my car papers, everything. They had everything. And he's like, uh, what was the purpose of your visit to Armenia? I tell him about the whole Iran story and yada, yada. It took me about a minute to give him that answer. Then he's like, what was the purpose of your visit to Armenia? I'm like, I just told you. He's like, what was the purpose of your visit to Armenia? So I tell him again. What was the purpose of your visit to Armenia? This went on for about 45 minutes. I'd say for the first 15 minutes, it was funny. And I thought this was ridiculous. And I wasn't at all worried or nervous. After half an hour, I started feeling, I, I, was, I, was, being, I was concerned. Because I thought maybe I'd been somewhere I shouldn't have been. 
Have I done something I shouldn't have done? Have they found something in my car? Has somebody put something in my luggage? I started getting paranoid. But I, 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 you know, I didn't have another story than the one I was saying. That was, it was the truth. And I had to stick to it because, well, I mean, you know, on the one hand, you're worried. On the other hand, you're like, I know I didn't do anything wrong, at least not, not consciously. After about 45 minutes, he's like, well, thank you very much. Welcome to Azerbaijan. We hope you have a fantastic time here. Suddenly he was super polite and nice. It was almost, I mean, it was, it was odd, you know, very strange experience. And then they sent me on my way with waves and everything. And it was, it was wow. peculiar. But yeah, for about 45 minutes. Making you sweat. Definitely. And that was the intention. That's how they operate. It was a, it was a full on interrogation. Yeah. Not many people get the opportunity to experience that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not sure. I'm happy. Without doing anything wrong. No, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Fast five. Five quick fire questions require five quick fire answers. My guests must answer five random questions about traveling without thinking too much. The fast five. Number one, Northern or Southern? Southern. Number two, Left or right? Right. Number three, book or Kindle? Book. Number four, one way or round trip? Round trip. Number five, public or private? Public. Fast five. 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 The thing is, you know, there's, there's something really interesting about returning home from a trip, you know? It's that, that's actually something that I enjoy a lot. I like that. Even though I may leave without a clear destination in mind, and I'll, you know, I'll see where it takes me, there's going to be a point where I feel like I need to go, I need to turn back to zero now. I need to reset. Because in some respects, that moment is what the entire trip is about. You know, the moment in which you're, the moment in which you're no longer traveling, the, the moment when you are at rest again, and actually get the opportunity to compare yourself to the person you were before. That's, a, that's an interesting moment in, in any trip, I think. So it's, it's about both. It's about the one-wayness of it, but on the other hand, it's also about the returning from it. Hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm divided on that answer. Okay. But you're saying you put a lot of sort of emphasis on the reflection of the journey and of the experience. Yeah. Inevitably, I think you always do. Um, not necessarily so much because of yourself, but because of the reaction you bring out in other people, because of the conversations you have with other people and... I don't know. It's, it's an odd, it's an odd experience. Like I, sometimes I wonder, does traveling have a greater effect on me than I have on other people through traveling? Cause obviously I'm individually, uh, we are a very small quantity, but by, by sort of, I don't know, man, this is maybe a bit out of left field, but I, I feel sometimes I noticed this when I was, when I was traveling on, on this really long trip, which is like eight months long and you meet hundreds if not thousands of people along the way. I sort of saw myself at times as like a, like a weird, like a particle traveling through a, a matrix and you have like your own little field and you're imparting this field onto the particles that surround you into this, like the social matrix that you traverse, like some sort of a Higgs boson or something. It affects me relatively little, but the people I talk to along the way, um, the conversations I have, it has, it has a little effect on everybody. And I think cumulatively, traveling has a fairly large effect on others. I think that the traveler is somehow quite an, quite an interesting character. In my experiences, I've found that my initial adventurous and you know, journeys that took me from zero to, to somewhere mm. had a great effect on me. Yeah. But you kind of become acclimatized to the idea of being a traveler. Yeah. However, when you are a traveler and you come across people all over the world, mm. perhaps in small towns or even big cities who perhaps are younger or have not had the same opportunities, you can be almost like a celebrity to them. Yeah. Because you're this new, interesting, inspiring, crazy person with all these stories. Yeah. And they have so many questions. Actually, for me, I didn't really start traveling proper until I was well into my 20s. I'd done trips even when I was a teenager. I went away with the Cub Scouts and the Scouts and uh, the Army Cadets, mm -hmm. you know, and I'd done two week long camps or, or journeys across the, the place. And even when I was 
in my teens, I did a, a road trip, um, which I guess is something, but it wasn't like what it was when I was in my mid twenties and just going everywhere one way. I felt like I wanted to go to Seattle. I went to Seattle. Right. If I wanted to go to Montreal, I went to Montreal. I just got on a plane or I got on the bus yeah. and I went and I got used to that idea. Whereas in the beginning it was mental. Yeah. But then still the people you meet are intrigued. Yeah. And you, you're, you're like a celebrity. You are. And in some places, I mean, especially in, in the more remote and rural parts of the world where, you know, people may have an intellectual awareness of the existence of your country, your culture, but they've never met anyone from that place. You know, I think for them, it's probably, you know, it's, it's a little bit like, you know, meeting some, a little bit like an alien or something. And actually being able to sort of break down some of the prejudices or fears even that people might have towards outsiders from far away and just sort of sitting down and, and having a beer and uh, sharing some food or cooking something together. It's an incredibly rewarding thing to do. At the same time, I mean, I don't know, one of the places that I enjoy the most traveling is actually Central Asia because there are still many nomadic people out there. And these are people who understand travel. They, they understand the idea of traversing enormous distances, having to rely on each other. So out there, like if I'm, you know, camped out somewhere in the mountains of Kyrgyzstan and I'm just making my dinner in the middle of nowhere, I remember this, this was last year, actually, as uh, I'm just preparing my dinner by this little river. And I thought I was completely alone. I thought there was nobody else around. And suddenly, like, this guy comes around my car uh, with a bottle of kumis, which is like this fermented mare's milk and uh, a loaf of bread. And he, I don't know, he must have seen me from far away because he rode up with his horse. And um, we couldn't really converse much, you know. But just the act of sort of appearing and, and kind of like being like, hey, you know, you're right. Do you need anything? And um, so then we shared a few things. I gave him a few cigarettes and, uh, and I gave him, uh, what else did I give him? I can't remember. I think I gave him a pack of biscuits and he gave me uh, some bread and so on. That sort of making sure that everyone's all right is something which I, I don't know, it, it meant a lot to me. And I think that there's amongst nomads, there is a better understanding of that need than there might be among sedentary people who live in cities and villages and who have established communities that they rely upon, which nomads don't. So I think that's, that's something that to me was, was a pretty valuable experience and lesson. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's something that very few people get to experience mm. that kind of middle of nowhere interaction without words, <laughs> exactly communicating with, with gestures and, and energy rather than verbal communication. Yeah. And just sort of, the things that you need to talk about are the things that are kind of implicitly understood anyway. It's not like we're going to be having great political conversations or something like that. We were going to be talking about the basics of our, you know, our respective transport modules, his horse, my car, where do you sleep? Uh, what's your food? How do you cook? You know, where do you come from? Where are you going? Those kinds of that, that sort of very basic, but at the same time, ultimately the most informative kind of conversation you can have in that context, that's always understood somehow. And you always, you know, we you always find a way to, to, to kind of communicate at that level. How long did you spend with this person? Well, he then invited me back to his yurt where I was then introduced to his family. I actually spent the night there because it got very cold that night. It actually snowed and um, I didn't believe him. He said, Ooh, you know, it was going to snow. I'm like, it was a beautiful evening. No way is it going to snow, but I was an idiot because obviously he knows the place much better than I do. And he was 100% right. And the next day there was like a good 30, 40 centimeters of snow, which is tricky. Yeah. So um, he invited me over and uh, I drove over there and um, um, then we had dinner and they, they were super nice. They were, he had a, one of the little cousins, Ali was his name. He actually spoke some English because he learned some English in school. So these nomads are not always completely nomadic. They are, they're horse breeders and they leave their horses up on the pasture in the mountains over the summer. And then come September, they take the horses back down into the valley. And then they spend the winter in a town or a village where then the kid goes to school. So he spoke some English and he was a, a really good translator. And uh, then the conversation actually became a little bit more broad ranging, I would say. Um, so yeah, it was, a, it was a really interesting experience. Sound, sounds like a wonderful time. And I imagine a memory that you cherish forever. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I, I'm still in touch with him. I have him on WhatsApp and uh, we still sort of send each other photographs and stuff. Every now and again, he sends me a picture of, I don't know, a cult that was born last year. Oh, like, look how big he is now and stuff. And yeah. 
So well, it's, it's really neat. Mm. And I imagine he's then passing on to his family because obviously he's the translator, what you're up to and exactly. sharing through him. That's right. Uh, it's, it's just odd having these little, I don't know, these sort of little points of these little reference points dotted in the most random locations around the world. I'm not in touch with by any stretch of the imagination, most of the people I've met, but there are a few that I still keep in contact with. Yeah. It's almost another full-time job keeping in touch with all the people you've met. Yeah. I mean, it's not like we are in touch every day, but we write each other a message maybe every couple of months or like send each other a random photograph of something or, you know, but it's, it's nice to, to know that there's someone out there who, you know, you still have, there's, there's some kind of a link that still exists. And that is actually another thing about technology that I think is, that's definitely a positive, you know, I think it's become so much easier to remain in contact with people. And that's a good thing. I often find myself just having a, a wondering thought of somebody I met mm -hmm. maybe just one day, because on that day in my life, it was particularly important emotionally or spiritually to me. And this person had an impact Yeah, and I'll just be wondering about them. And it's so easy now to then just say, hey, on Facebook or, or Instagram or whatever. Yeah. I was just remembering that hilarious time on that day. What are you up to? Yeah. And, you know, get a little photograph back or a little story. And, right. you know, it's, it's kind of passive sometimes and kind of lazy, but at least it's something. Yeah, I mean, it can obviously devolve into that. And it can devolve into sort of a perfunctory and sort of meaningless kind of shallow, um, you know, texting people because you're bored. But... It, you know, that's, that's one side of the coin. And the other side of the coin are those, those occasions or those opportunities where you're able to, to remain in contact with people who at, at some point in your life, actually, even if it was just for like a day, as you say, you know, had some kind of meaning and, and it's nice to sort of keep that memory alive or in fact, build on it and sort of develop further connections in the future and stuff. Yeah, exactly. All right, Martin, it's been an absolute pleasure catching up with you and chatting to you about traveling. The pleasure is all mine, mate. And uh, I hope I managed to come up to Liverpool again at some point. What are your plans these days anyway? Are you going to stick around or are you going somewhere? What's the deal? I've always got uh, ideas, mate. <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Nostalgic Vagabond. My guest has been Martin Goffrilla. There are more episodes in this podcast series where you can hear different stories from other travellers. Check them out where you get your podcasts. You can also follow me at The Nostalgic V. Thanks to Tom Forfer for creating the soundtrack to the series. Don't forget, your journey is special. Own it. I've been Alan Hill. Until next time.